You're listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast. My name is Matthew, and as your host, my mission is to help you discover who God is and what it means to live as a citizen of His kingdom. Greetings, Finchwood listeners. A few weeks ago on this podcast, we looked at how to worship God, what that entails and what it really looks like. And at that time, I announced that this next topic would be called How to Deal with Sin. However, as I continued to do more and more research for this episode, I came to the conclusion that I should divide it into two episodes, since it really is two separate questions. On the one hand, the level of responsibility and authority that I have to respond to my own sin is very different from how I can respond to sin in other people and the responsibility that I have in that situation. So we'll deal with the first one now and talk about the other one next time. And honestly, I think that's a great sequence. After all, Jesus said that we should deal with the logs in our own eyes before even trying to help our neighbor with the speck of dirt in theirs. Taking on other people's problems, and we'll talk more about what I even mean by that next time, is something that can never be done safely unless, at a minimum, we've grappled with the reality of our own shortcomings first. So this week we're talking about how to eradicate sin from your own life. And in keeping with the trend that I've been setting for the past few months, let's begin this episode by defining a few terms. First and foremost, I think we should ask, what is sin? Now, this was a topic that I talked about in episode 14, I believe, of the previous season. So if you want a good in-depth discussion of what sin is, I do recommend going there. So what is sin? The short version, without summarizing all of that previous episode, is that sin is the opposite of what we talked about in the previous episode about worship. If worship is putting God first, giving him honor and praise, then sin is when we bring him dishonor. It's when we put ourselves first. And just like how worship can be expressed in specific actions, but even more than that, it's about the posture of our hearts, So too, sin can be expressed in individual actions, but those are just the symptom of something that's going on inside of us, and the root cause of sin is that we refuse to let God decide what's good and what is evil. Instead, we've taken that role for ourselves. We inevitably decide that we're always right, that our desires come first, and that basically the whole universe revolves around us. That's human nature. It's selfishness and hubris and that results in a lifestyle in which essentially we are worshiping ourselves. And the tip of that iceberg that we see coming out is the individual sins. And so we find ourselves in the situation that the Apostle Paul described in the first half of his letter to the Christians in Rome. In short, he said that we've all got this inclination towards sinful behavior, that we've all crossed the line from time to time and fallen short of perfection. Whether that's from doing the wrong thing or just from failing to do the right thing, and without some kind of radical divine intervention, we are all doomed to repeat that pattern forever. Anyone who's been a Christian for more than, say, a couple of weeks is probably bitterly aware of the fact that just surrendering your selfish impulses and deciding that you're going to be righteous and humble from now on is an impossible task. We can't change ourselves because we are the problem. It's kind of like bathing in mud. It's not going to make you any more clean. What it's going to do is just move the dirt around. And it's a pity that so much of our discussion about sin over the past few centuries has been about modifying outward behaviors 
when they're just a symptom of this disease that we are powerless to resist without God's help. In that same letter to the Romans, Paul talks about how the righteous punishment for all sin is death. Now, someone may point out that death is hardly a fitting punishment for every offense, and I'm inclined to agree with you on a surface level. If I steal a candy bar from the corner store, that's hardly deserving of physical death, much less the spiritual everlasting death that's described in some biblical passages. But the whole message of Christianity is that Jesus is the king and that he's good and that his way is the best. So, on a deeper level, dealing with the rest of the iceberg below the surface, what I've really done and what we've all done is commit treason against the king. We've put ourselves up on the throne in his place. And that's a different story altogether. The bottom line here is that no good king allows rebels to live in his kingdom, especially when the cause that they're rebelling in favor of is self-centeredness. And yes, we can argue until we are blue in the face about whether the punishment fits the crime, what hell is or isn't actually like, whether it's truly everlasting, or where human free will does or does not come into play in this discussion. But I, for one, am tired of having those kinds of arguments. Ultimately, the reason I still believe this isn't just that the Bible tells me so, though that does guide my reasoning on the subject, and it provides me language to express this out loud. But the main reason that I can gladly believe in a biblical model of divine punishment for sin is that I've actually met God, and in my experience, he's infinitely good and kind and gentle. And so if he says humanity has committed evil acts, I believe him. And beyond that, I also have news that I can turn on on my TV and I see that evil acts go on in the world. And the problem is that I don't really know of a good line in the sand that I can draw and say, these people on this side of the line are deserving of punishment, and these people on this side have done evil things, but they're just not that evil. There is no clear-cut definition of evil enough to be on God's radar. To put an even finer point on this, I'm very much aware of my own shortcomings and some of the wrongs that I've committed over the past few decades. I know that I need forgiveness, and I know that I need help with my own sin problems. So, if you're with me on all that, then let's not hide behind all these philosophical and theological arguments anymore. Let's just say, yes, God, first of all, I need help. I'm not perfect, and I trust that you're merciful enough to forgive me and help me change. That is rightfully the starting point of this whole conversation about sin and forgiveness, because remember that we're not talking about anyone else's problems, at least not this week. No, we've got to deal with our own mess first. A blind person shouldn't lead another blind person around. They should both at least get a dog or something. Until we develop enough humility to examine ourselves and be aware of our own weakness, then pointing them out in others is only going to lead us into hypocrisy. And if we go down that road, we will end up hurting ourselves and others 100% of the time guaranteed. But if we do manage to get over ourselves, admit our imperfection, and ask God to forgive and cleanse us, then he is more than willing and he's faithful to remove our sins from us. This might be the subject of yet another episode altogether, but that's a big part of what Jesus was going for by dying on the cross. I don't think I have time here to get into all the details, but there was an old system of animal sacrifices that God had put in place long before Jesus came 
that dealt with removing sin by having an animal die in the place of the person offering it. That animal took the punishment that was required, and it also served as a visceral reminder of the harm that sin always causes, whether it's to ourselves or to others. Fast forward about a thousand years, and when the time was right, Jesus came along and offered himself as an entirely greater sacrifice, one that was capable of paying that penalty for all of sin, for all time. So at the very least, we have the opportunity to be completely clean as far as God is concerned. That sacrifice took care of the death sentence hanging over our heads. It also took care of the relational separation between us and God, and it freed us from the obligation to keep going back to those sinful behavior patterns and attitudes over and over and over again. All we have to do is trust God to keep forgiving us. What can be even more challenging than that, at least in my own experience, is forgiving ourselves, treating ourselves with the same dignity that God places on us. But we have to. In fact, we have no more right to declare ourselves to be sinners than we had to declare ourselves righteous. Only God has the right to judge, so when we condemn ourselves or others, we're still taking on his authority to declare what's good and what's evil. In either case, our job is to simply accept that he's wise and good enough to tell us what and who we are. I'll have a lot more to say about that line of reasoning in the next episode, which will include a segment about forgiveness. But for now, I'll just say that if he says I'm righteous, that has to be good enough for me. Now before I move on, I should clarify something. While Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection take care of the consequence of sin that exists between us and God, as well as giving us a basis on which to forgive ourselves for the wrongs that we've committed in the past, what it doesn't do is control the free will of other people. God will forgive you, for example, if you rob a bank. But that doesn't mean that you don't go to prison in the here and now. Furthermore, if there are physical consequences of that sinful action, like if you injure someone in the process, it doesn't automatically fix every negative result. We still have to live with the consequences of our actions, and so does everyone else around us. That's why even though forgiveness is of the utmost importance, it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card, and it's not licensed to go ahead and keep sinning. The real goal here is to change those behavior patterns altogether by changing the internal processes that cause them in the first place. That happens through a process that we call repentance. I realize that the word repentance, just like sin, carries a lot of its own religious baggage. For many people, it probably conjures up images of angry street preachers screaming at people that they're lower than dirt and that they ought to hate themselves. I want to remain sensitive to how honestly triggering that could be for people who have been hurt in the past by that kind of fear-based and shame-based messaging. Yes, there is an appropriate place and time for feeling remorse for the things that we've done, but only as a motivation to seek forgiveness and to begin the process of changing. Never once does that diminish the value that God places on you as a human being. Once you come to God, accept his mercy, and let him pick you back up, there's no condemnation left and no reason to feel ashamed or guilty in the slightest. So that model of what repentance is, just feeling terrible all the time, isn't even remotely biblical and 
Honestly, I wish that that had never happened. And if I had a better word for this concept, I would certainly use it. But unfortunately, I can't think of one that even comes close to encapsulating all the different shades of meaning that are bound up together in the word repent. For the record, I wouldn't be opposed to re-editing this entire episode, so if you have a better term in mind, please contact me. On that note, this is as good a time as any to remind you that my contact information is in the description of every episode, and that I'm open to every kind of feedback, suggestions, questions, and the like, so please fire away. Anyway, when I say shades of meaning, it's worth telling you that the biblical concept of repentance is very different from the way that it's spoken of by our enraged brother down on the street corner with a homemade sign and a bullhorn. As I've said in previous episodes, the Bible was primarily written in two languages, Hebrew and Greek. And, as you might expect, each of those languages has a word that's usually translated into English as repent, though you may be very surprised to find out what those words actually originally mean. The Hebrew word is shuv, which means something along the lines of change direction. It's the word that you would shout out to someone if they were about to walk off a cliff. It also means return, and that's the main point of repentance. Yes, we're talking about changing course, turning away from things that are capable of destroying us, but even more so, we're talking about an invitation back to something, back to the joy and safety that's found in an unencumbered relationship with God. It's the voice of a father pleading with his wayward child, Come back. You're always welcome in my house. All you have to do is stop walking away, turn around, and come toward me again. That's the real focus, and it's a real tragedy when we get so focused on warning people away from the cliff that we forget to tell them that they're welcome in our community. So that's the Hebrew word which is used in the Old Testament for repentance. I find it fascinating that the meaning of the New Testament Greek word is so radically different from the Hebrew, and yet they both describe the same process. In Greek, the word is metanoia. And roughly translated, it means something to the effect of change your mind. Part of that meaning, of course, is to change our definitions of right and wrong, our value system, what we agree or disagree with, so that our beliefs conform with what God says is true. But this is talking about so much more than the conscious, intellectual part of the mind. What we're also talking about here is the deeper stuff, the emotions, and what would even be better described as the soul, how we feel about God, and even about ourselves. Anybody who has ever totally flubbed a New Year's resolution knows that it's one thing to want to do the right thing, but it's another to actually end up doing it. Each one of us has a whole universe of thoughts and feelings inside us, that determine how we're going to act or react in any given situation. And until that conscious and especially unconscious matrix of feelings and thoughts gets changed, we're at least partially powerless to change our behavior. In Season 2, Episode 2 of this podcast, I talked for a few minutes about how our purpose as Christians is to love God and love others. But before we can ever do that, we have to accept and receive and truly believe in, on a heart level, His love for us. As long as you feel like a dirty sinner, and as long as you believe that you are unlovable, as long as you expect God to be upset with everything you do, 
you'll find it extremely difficult to modify your behavior, even if it's in the direction of what you think he wants you to do. On the other hand, when he actually convinces you that you are not your sin, that's when the real transformation happens. Knowing that you're forgiven and that you're loved, and that there's nothing you can do to change that, that's what empowers you to act differently. That's why it's important to hold on to both translations of repentance. Yes, it's absolutely true that as Christians we're called to live differently, to change our behavior patterns and conform them to God's way of doing things. But the way we do that is by allowing God to change our hearts, making them more confident in His love. And in turn, we begin that process by accepting God's invitation to return, to come home to the place where we are loved beyond measure. Repentance begins with a choice, but that choice is simply to say yes to God, to let Him love you, despite your imperfections. I'm going to be honest with you, it takes a lifetime to walk through that process in all the different areas of our hearts where sin and brokenness still exist. But as someone who's been doing that for a few decades now, I can promise you that it does work. If you keep coming back to God's mercy again and again and again, over time you'll notice the transformation going on inside yourself. Addictions will lose the iron grip that they have on your life. Things that used to be impossible to resist become easy to give up. And you'll feel more and more alive and clean and refreshed by the God who loves to make all things new. So that, in a nutshell, is what it means to repent. There is also a word for the whole process, the gradual transformation, in which we exchange our sinful tendencies and patterns for righteousness and new life. That process is called sanctification, which is honestly just a fancy Latin word that means becoming more holy. Sanctification is a vital part of being a follower of Jesus because it's the process by which we become more like him. As each of us progresses along that lifelong journey, there are a few things that we can do to make the road ahead at least a little bit easier to walk. The first is that we can do what we can to avoid actively sabotaging our efforts to follow Jesus. What I mean when I say that is each of us has strengths and weaknesses. And it's very helpful for every Christian to be aware of their own weaknesses so that they don't trip over them. The classic example here is that if you're a recovering alcoholic, it's best not to walk into a bar. The same kind of principle also applies for people who know that they have a particular weakness toward lust or gossiping or any other vice that you can think of. The principle is to not place yourself in a position where you know you're going to be tempted in the first place. That's the first line of defense. The second one is similar. It's to leave those tempting situations when you do happen to get surprised by one. Temptations will happen, but it's worth saying here that being tempted is not a sin in itself. Even Jesus was tempted, according to Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15, without surrendering to sin. The question is just what are you going to do with that temptation once it pops up? Are you going to flirt with it and see how close you can get? Slip across the line for a quick hit of whatever it is that you struggle with and hope you don't get caught? Or will you, when possible, recognize temptation when it raises its ugly head and learn to say no to resist it? Now those two points are good advice on how to avoid falling into the trap of sin in the first place. 
But what do you do if you've already slipped, and the damage is done? That's where our third strategy point comes in, and that's the art of confession. Yet again, this is something that we Christians have made weird over the past few centuries. But it's not supposed to be anything nearly as complicated as what you might have seen on TV or grown up in. You don't need to go to a professional clergyman, you don't have to sit in a special weird phone booth with a grid that you talk through, and you don't have to recite a particular script. Confession really just means finding a Christian friend or a group of friends that you can trust and unburdening yourself from whatever deep, dark secret that you've been holding on to. Now, confession sounds really scary at first, but it's actually one of the most joyful and liberating things that a Christian can experience. When we tell our sins to a fellow Christian, we have the opportunity to discover that we're not struggling alone. Whatever you struggle with, I guarantee it's not unique to you. Even more than that, we find that we're not actually as unlovable as we feared we might be. It's a wonderfully powerful thing to hear another person say, you're forgiven, you're still loved. You can be free from this. We could repeat those very true statements back to ourselves a thousand times over, but it will not have the same impact in our hearts as if we hear them from another person that we know knows us. Finally, confession solidifies our resolve to change. As long as our sin remains a secret, we have the luxury of pretending that it's not sinful at all. In that moment of temptation, it's easy to convince ourselves that we're just imagining things or that our consciences are playing tricks on us. But once we talk to a fellow Christian and get a second opinion, especially if it's from somebody relatively wise that you know you can trust, it's much harder to go through those mental gymnastics and convince yourself that it's okay in that moment of weakness. Fourth, once you've crossed the confession threshold with someone, once you've learned that they're a safe person that you can confide in, meaning that they're not going to mock you or condemn you, that they listen well and that they can be trusted to maintain confidentiality, it's natural and common at that point to set up an ongoing accountability arrangement with them. This could be as casual as a simple, hey, would you mind checking in on me from time to time and asking how I'm doing in this area? Or it could be as formal as meeting together on a regular basis to pray together and to go through a set spiritual and moral inventory where you define to one another how you've been doing in a number of key areas. And those inventories are available all over the internet. They're actually a really great tool. I do recommend them. One word of caution that I'll throw out there when it comes to accountability partnerships is that trusting another person with your deepest secrets and having them express God's love to you in those dark places can be a surprisingly intimate thing. So these arrangements are usually set up with men confessing to men and women confessing to women. Also, there have been incidents in the past where these kinds of relationships have ended up having weird power dynamics, so be careful about that. But for the most part, Having an accountability partner is a great way to keep yourself encouraged and motivated to continue eradicating sin from your life. Now, there is a fifth and final bit of advice I'd like to share with you before we close out this episode, and it's this. Yes, God is always willing to forgive your sin, but more often than not, there are relational consequences that will occur between you and other people, and as Christians, we're responsible for doing whatever we can to make it right. 
at a bare minimum, that means being willing to apologize to anyone that we've hurt or offended through our own sinfulness, letting them express their feelings about the situation if they need to, and then asking them for their forgiveness. There may also be some practical steps that we can take to make amends for the wrongs we've done. For instance, if I break or steal something, I should offer to replace it. Repair the relational breach that was caused by your sin or even by your honest, sinless mistakes whenever possible. None of us is perfect, but in the Bible we're called to do whatever we can to live at peace with other people. And so, as Christians, we should be the first in line to apologize and to admit when we've been wrong and to move heaven and earth to make it right. Now, to be perfectly clear, just because you ask someone to forgive you, that doesn't mean that they're at all obligated to give you their forgiveness. Even if you make perfect restitution for your wrongdoing, you humble yourself, you apologize a hundred times, even if you beg them on your hands and knees, you can't make someone forgive you. That's the other person's responsibility. And as we've said before in this very episode, we are not in control of other people's actions. And honestly, that seems like a great segue into our next topic, which will be how to respond to other people's sin. So I hope you'll join me next time for that. That episode should be coming out in a couple of weeks. Meanwhile, please take a moment to give this episode a good rating if you found it helpful, and help me to help others by giving Finchwood a shout-out on social media. Thank you in advance, and of course, thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast, conversations for people who want to be more like Jesus. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe now and consider sharing it with your friends. For more information about this episode's topic, or to continue the discussion, please consult the show notes. See you next time.